0: A lot of us pride ourselves in the effort we put into our work, but we also sometimes take it too far. On this episode, Greg McEwen returns with the invitation to stop trying so hard. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 523.
1: Produced by Innovate Learning.
0: Maximizing Human Potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahofiak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. So many of us have had success in our careers and as leaders by working hard, of putting in a lot of effort. And yet sometimes that Puritan work ethic that a lot of us value culturally gets in our way, and we try too hard. We make things too complicated, and we make things too complex. Today, I'm glad to welcome back to the show an expert that's going to help us to continue to look at what's essential and also invite us to simplify. I'm so pleased to have back Greg McKeown on the show. He is a speaker, best-selling author, and the host of the popular podcast, What's Essential. He's been covered by The New York Times, Fast Company, Fortune, Politico, Inc., and has been interviewed on NPR, NBC, Fox, and many others. He is among the most popular bloggers on LinkedIn and also a young global leader for the World Economic Forum. His New York Times bestselling book, Essentialism, has sold more than a million copies worldwide. He is the author of the new book, Effortless, Make It Easier to Do What Matters Most. Greg, so glad to have you back on the show.
1: It's great to be with you. Thank you, Dave.
0: I can't recall if when we talked last year, I shared with you my journey with essentialism, and what has it been seven, eight years now since essentialism came out?
1: Seven years since it's been out.
0: Yeah, and uh, when I read it, I mean, coaching for leaders was just a tiny side project, and at the time, I was, I was navigating a whole lot of things in my professional portfolio, and and your book really challenged me to think differently about and making some different decisions, and ultimately led me to set aside some professional projects, which in retrospect was hugely important in where I am today. So thank you, first of all, for that. And the other reason I'm thinking about that is, of course, you mention essentialism a bunch in this new book, and you also talk about your journey after essentialism. And it's interesting because a lot of the folks who read essentialism had just a wonderful journey of thinking about their lives and their work in a new way. And you also had a journey after Essentialism came out, but it was actually a little different, perhaps the opposite, wasn't it?
1: Well, I, I mean, Essentialism changed everything for me, and I feel enormously grateful for that. It, it allowed me to do the things that uh, I wanted to do in the world. I wanted uh, to be teaching and speaking to audiences all over the world, people who wanted to become Essentialists. Uh, I wanted to be able to respond to people who emailed and said, "Well, that this book has, you know, really had an impact and positively, you know, changed my life in some way." And occasionally, even people say, "Well, look, this this has saved my life." You know, so there's, you know, I wanted to do all of the things that came my way because of this life-changing experience of, of writing and then publishing Essentialism. <laughs> but that in that it lies a bit of a conundrum because you suddenly have more great opportunities and, and responsibilities and people to be able to work with and connect with and to, to coach and so on. Uh, but in addition to being you know the father of essentialism, so to speak, I was also by this time father to four children. And that's, that's, you know, that's the epitome of what's really essential to me. And so there's this ad- additional increase of responsibility And I wanted to be there for them. I wanted to coach them. I wanted to be able to uh, listen to them whenever they wanted to talk, you know, however inconvenient that can sometimes be, especially for teenagers when they suddenly feel comfortable to share. And so there wasn't a motivation problem. These were the right problems to have, but it doesn't make them less of a problem. And I started to sense a bit of a crack in assumptions I'd held firmly. Particularly, I can I can use a illustration of, of a metaphor. I was traveling one time. I've got my uh, I was talking to some entrepreneurs there. Uh, they're sharing. Somebody shares the, um, the the big rocks theory, which I'm sure we're all familiar with. The big rocks theory: if you have a container and you put in the the sand and then the small rocks and then the big rocks, well, it doesn't fit. But if you put the big rocks in, then the small rocks then ascend, then it all fits. And voila, that's how it's supposed to work. And that's pretty much what essentialism is arguing. If you strip away all the non-essentials, then, and you just do the, you know, what are the big rocks? Well, you invest in yourself first, the your most important relationships next, uh, you know, the, the vital projects, the vital few things that you want to do professionally after that. If you do that, it all, you know, then the most important things will get done and fit. Well. That's true, but what if this? What if you have too many big rocks? That They are essential, but there's still so many of them, they don't fit. Because I was being the the most selective I'd ever been. I mean, I wasn't writing another book and the pressure to do that was enormous and I wanted to do it. I wasn't building a... I I said no to building a, a workshop business, even though there's tremendous opportunity and demand for doing that. I wasn't doing that. I put my Stanford class that I'd co-created on hold so that I could really be selective. And even with being more selective than I'd ever been, there's still more responsibility than can fit. And in the midst of that already scenario, I'm there at the hotel and I get a call from my son, Jack, from my wife's phone. So that already got my attention. It's videoing in. His face is pale. He's trying to explain what's going on clearly very worried. I can hear my wife saying, turn the phone around. And what was happening was that my one well, of my daughters was having a massive tonic, tonic seizure. And that launched us into a completely different and unexpected uh, journey. At the very end of the book, I talk about about that journey. We don't necessarily need to go into all of it. But, but th- suddenly, we're dealing with a crisis in addition to all these other responsibilities. The, the adrenaline gets you through the Immediate aftermath of that—the red-eye flight home, the change of plans, and so on—but but it really just crescendoed into a point where you say, "You know, we got to do this differently." And so it wasn't about so much changing what we were doing. I think we were focused on the right things, and even for the right reasons. That that wasn't it. But what if we're doing it in the wrong way? And that. That really was a, a key breakthrough. It, 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 what, what was going on with my daughter was a, um, you know, she was a massive discombobulation neurologically uh, with an undiagnosed condition or uh, causation, and it, there was a total freefall in her capability for, for the, you know, the next several months uh, with, without anyone being able to help us at whatsoever uh, with what was what was going on, and and that just you know pushed as to a point and even beyond it of of like you know we don't know how to do this and so if i can frame it this way essentialism is about prioritization and rethinking prioritization and i completely advocate that now as much as i ever have i believe that i think it's necessary but it's insufficient you've got to have what's essential you've got to strip away what's non-essential but you also have to figure out the right way to do it, and the right way to do it, you know, so effortless. This new book I see as being about simplification. So you've got prioritization is is essentialism. Simplification is effortless, and together they're sort of like these. You know, there's a there's a multiplication effect where you you can you're able to take not just your current responsibilities. You might be able to contribute at a ten x level, but you can do it because you're you're not just being selective, you're also doing it in an effortless way. And so out of this quite agonizing experience at first, uh, we out of, first out of necessity uh, and then out of curiosity pursued this multi-year journey in trying to understand how can you make the so like what if everything doesn't have to be so hard? What if there are effortless solutions and we just aren't seeing them because we aren't asking that question? Here is a question people can ask. It's so simple. But if you want to ease the burden of your people, if you want to ease the burdens in your life, if you want to do all of that while still getting better results, you ask this question. And there's four or five different scenarios I would recommend people asking this question. But the question is this, what can I do to make this effortless? That's it. That's the question. What can I do to make this effort? What can we do to make this effortless? So set a challenging goal by all means. Get clear about what you want to achieve. Something important, some important result that you want to achieve. But don't just leave it there and then say, okay, well, let's go for it. Let's just double down. You ask the next question. And I, I, I think it's almost, almost magical question. I remember coaching one manager on this, she's the kind of person. She literally up at 4 a.m. in the morning, you know, doing Photoshop for the next day's meeting. I mean, this is she. This is who she is. This is at least who she thinks she is. Is someone who just has to achieve things through sheer uh, effort and exhaustion. And I, I said to her, "Look, just there's this magic question, right? What if this could be effortless? Just the next, you know, start asking this question, see what happens." So she gets a call from she's in a university. A professor calls. I need your team to record the whole of uh, my semester long class. And she just is just ready, well-trained, well-developed to overachieve, to to impress. And she can see it in her mind, already starting. Okay, I'm gonna get my team. We're going to, uh, we'll we'll video everything. I'll explain the whole approach. uh, Not only will we record it, we're gonna edit it for him. We're gonna add music. We'll have graphics. I have an intro and outro to every episode. I mean, he's going to just be wowed by this, and she is ready to put her whole team in play uh, in going the extra mile. And then she just has that pause, right? She just realizes, "My, I'm answering a question I didn't know I was answering." Here's the question: Instead, what if this could be effortless? She starts having a different conversation with him. She says, "Look, you know, who is this really for? What's this? You know, is there a way we could do this effortlessly?" Well, it turns out it's for one student who has a sports commitment, athletic commitment, so won't be able to be in the class, but still needs to, to, to in order to graduate, needs to take this class. The solution they come up with is one other student will just record it on an iPhone and send it to him each week from the class. The professor is thrilled with that solution, delighted with it. And she walks away, hangs up the phone, it's a 10 minute phone call. And she has saved four months of work for a whole videography team for the power of a single question. That is seriously, literally what is available to us. So often, but we just do not ask the question.
0: There's so many practical invitations you make in the book, and that's one of them, of just asking that simple question. And one that really leapt out at me as I was reading is the invitation you make to define what done looks like. And I I don't know if there's a better example of that than the story you tell in the book of the Vasa. Would you share that? The
1: Vasa is a a most remarkable story. Um, It's Gustav II. He's the king of Sweden. And he sees this vital need to upgrade his armada of ships. Uh, He wants to protect his people from these growing naval powers around him. And his attention gets drawn to building a single giant military warship. He finds the shipbuilder, Henrik uh, Heibertsson, tasks him to build the Vasa. Uh, it's super important. So it's, it is essential from the king's perspective to do this. In fact, so much so, he gives the resources, a forest of a thousand trees. Uh, he opens the royal coffers. He assures Hybertson that he would have an almost unlimited budget to complete the project. But unfortunately, the king did not have this clear vision of what a final product would look like, or rather, he kept changing his vision. Of what it would look like. It kept expanding. At first, the ship was to be 108 feet long with 32 cannons on deck. You know, later he changed it to 120 feet, uh, even though the lumber had already been cut to the original specifications. But no sooner had Henry's team made those adjustments that the target shifted again, and the king decided the ship needed to be 135 feet long. Uh, the cannon requirements changed as well. At first, there are 32 cannons in a single row. Then he asked for 36 cannons in two rows, plus another 12 small cannons, 48 mortars, 10 more smaller caliber weapons. I mean, the tremendous effort that went into this from like 400 people to make it happen. And even as they're approaching completion, the king changes his mind again. Now it's 64 large cannons instead. And the stress of that news is said to have killed Henry in a heart attack. So still, the endless project continues. Henrik's assistance, Hein Jacobson. The budgets escalate. The effort continues to expand. The king continues changing the end goal. Uh, He he adds, at one point, the utterly non-essential item for a gunship uh, is to add 700 ornate sculptures. Oh, no. And it takes a team of experts more than two years to complete. So, they're going to be attached to the sides, the bulwark, and the transom of the ship. So, here it is uh, that on the maiden voyage, August 10th, 1628, the Vasa leaves Stockholm, and it, has, it, it still hasn't been fully finished. Meanwhile, the king still has had time to create a celebration to commemorate the expedition. There are fireworks, there's foreign diplomats, there's pageantry. So as the ship sails away, the gun ports were open and the guns were pointing out so that they could fire a salute to the dignitaries on shore. And a gust of wind catches the sails of the ship, causing this massive vessel to tilt severely over to one side. As, uh, as the cannons tip into the sea, water enters through the gun ports. And despite then a strenuous additional all-out effort on the part of the crew, water just almost instantly floods the gun deck and goes into the hold, destabilizing the ship. And tragically, in just 50 minutes, the Vasa completely sinks, kills 53 crew members on board. I mean, they died less than three quarters of a mile from shore. So the most expensive naval project in Sweden's history sails less than one mile before being buried in the sea, all because the king has made the project almost impossible to safely complete by constantly defining what done looks like.
0: It's such a a tragic story, and yet it's a story that's so familiar at different scales that you and I see all the time, every single day. And the question that I find myself asking in interactions with our Academy members, especially often is when we're having a complex conversation is, what's the outcome you want? And it's really interesting to me how often that question really stops people in their tracks and gets them thinking, and they'll say, hmm, I hadn't really defined that yet. And And it's not that we all don't know that we should be defining what things look like it's just for for whatever reason we get caught up in the work and we forget to like you said earlier like what makes this effortless like really stepping back and figuring out what done looks like it's such a struggle for us isn't it
1: well i think that it's a struggle if you don't do it i think it's important to recognize that even with 1 minute like a 1 minute to clarity approach, you can, you can get a lot clearer about what done looks like. It, it doesn't have to be super hard. We have to have perfect clarity or take hours to figure this out. It, it's just, again, it's an example of changing the question. Instead of saying, okay, well, what are all the things that we just need to do on this project? You say, look, what does done look like? It's a, it's an effortless question. You take one minute to do it. Instead of, I mean, these are, yeah, instead of it's uh, I've got to turn in a big project. Uh, I've got to type up 12 pages full of concrete examples, actionable advice. And the customer says, Yes, that was terrific. Just creating in your mind exactly what that is. Uh, Instead of, okay, I'm going to read more books, it's on my digital book reader, it will say finished next to war and peace. Hmm. If, If instead of, now this is a personal example rather than a, management example, but instead of like, I'm going to lose weight, it's, I look down at the weighing scale and see the number 177 staring back at me. You know, like, just creating for our minds a precise destination that explicitly states it makes all the difference in the world. Because just for a start, you cannot complete something that is vague you have to actually get it done to be successful. So what we can do is just almost put our minds on autopilot once we have identified clearly the end state we're trying to achieve.
0: Related to this, I think very closely, is a suggestion you have in the book to create a done-for-the-day list. And I'm thinking especially about what you said about the pandemic and how much this has changed our work lives, and this has been a struggle for a lot of folks what does a done-for-the-day list look like?
1: Um, this is one of my favorite tactics in Effortless, and it's it's replacing the endless to-do list. You know, so the to-do list is you know, grows throughout a day, typically. Oh, I've got to do this, add, 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 keep adding things. And I'm not against having a place where you put all the possible things you could do and just so that you have a place to try and not have to remember that stuff. It's written down somewhere. You can access it. But this is something different. A done for the day list is we'll know we are done for the day in terms of the work that we're doing when we've accomplished these things on the list. So you're making a list of things that would be satisfying to you. You say, if I complete those things today, I'll be able to say, that was good. Important work got done, but I'll also be done. So but my wife and I, for example, through the pandemic, we noticed, well, if we don't do this, it goes on and on. But there's no real natural end. There isn't even getting the car, you know, come back from this. You know, a lot of people used to be in a car and have to travel. So there's a, mo- a physical division, at least for a moment, between work and, and home. And, and that there isn't in a lot of ways now for people. And so we found that even if we moved into relaxing, OK, we go sit in the bath or we get in the hot tub or we, we, go, we go on a walk. You can still do sneaky work. You know, you can still be buying that thing online. You can still be emailing that person. You can still be checking, uh, you know, checking work in, in other ways. Done for the day is you actually have the list. You know, if I you're answering again, I guess another question. If I complete everything on this list, will it leave me feeling satisfied by the end of the day? Uh, and, and that is what you write on the list it makes it it's achievable it's important things but when you're done okay you know hands up walk away nobody gets hurt
0: you mentioned the word simplify earlier and how so much of this book is really centered around that term and there's a whole chapter on simplifying and one of the other key questions that came up for me for us to ask ourselves and and also probably to ask others is what are the minimum steps Required for completion. How does that question help?
1: Well, it's actually quite a different approach to simplification. I mean, it's certainly any attempts to simplify welcome if you want to try and make something more effortless. But let me just like I I talked with with uh, Perry Hartman um, when I was researching this book, and uh, you know, so his his story I think is pretty interesting. He's leaving the four-story brick building at 2nd and Pike in Seattle, Washington. Uh, that was Amazon headquarters at the time. And he's going there for a meeting with Jeff Bezos and, and Shell uh, Kaffen, who was Amazon's first employee and head of software development. And he's going and meeting them at a microbrewery bre- uh, at, at uh, Pike Place Market, for those that, that know Seattle. And Bezos had called the meeting because he was trying to get the checkout process to be better on, you know, this relatively brand new e-commerce site, right? At the time, all e-commerce was pretty scary for people. Uh, you know, they were, it wasn't normal for everyone yet. Loads of people weren't even online yet. It was, it was, and buying something felt, you know, like an issue. And he'd recognized, basically recognized that the longer you make that checkout process, the more opportunity people have to, uh, to decide not to do it you know well, I was going to buy that book but i don't know now i'm going through this i forget it cuz you don't know, have to make stuff a lot harder for people not to do something a, you know, a little bit of friction can keep people away from taking action and so so per, you know perry had had this assignment for a couple of months to make this process simpler and what he'd done is he tried to simplify every step of the process You know, what what was the process like at that time, right? You you know, you're putting in your name, click. Uh, You're putting in your address, city, zip code, click, click, click. You know, there's like so many steps in the process. And he's like, okay, how can I make each of them simple? But then Bezos, in the middle of this meeting that they have, he says, we need something to make the ordering system frictionless. And that's just another way for effortless. We need to make it so that the customer can order products with the least amount of effort. And then his, his, his insight, they should be able to click on one thing and it's done. You know, so the goal was clear to Hartman is the goal was to make it easier. But the breakthrough at point, and this is, this is it, is that while Harry Hartman is trying to simplify each step of the process, Bezos is saying what we need is no steps of the process. Or or said differently, like, let's start from zero. And not, not start from our current process and simplify down. Simplify means start with nothing and say, what are the minimum things we can do? And this is what generates the idea of one-click ordering. And you know, some people probably don't like this, but, uh, but Amazon protects that idea, trademarks it, and it gives them an enormous competitive advantage for the next 20 years. So no one else can do one-click ordering. And for those that think that's not fair, I, I just think no one else at the time was doing it. No one else had had the thought because they're all thinking of simplification from going from complexity to simple. Whereas in what the effortless approach is, is you start at zero and say, how can you do it in the, the fewest possible steps? Because no matter how simple the step, it's still always easier to take no step at all. And, and that's really you know what this practice is all about when it applies to making things more effortless.
0: You make a distinction in talking about simplification as well, that there's a difference between minimum number of steps and what some people might call phoning it in, right? What's that difference?
1: Well, you're not saying, how can I cut corners on something that's essential? You're saying, Let's just not do the stuff that's non essential. Let's not do the things that aren't adding value. I mean, one of the ways that I like to think about this is that not everything needs the extra mile. So many times as overachievers and overthinkers and overdoers, we add on things that people weren't asking us to do. Now I'm in favor of initiative, but initiative around the right things. And when we get into this, this, you know, I'll say it this way being asked to do X isn't a good enough reason to do Y. Be careful not to add Y when they didn't even ask for it. Because then uh, you even get to the point where you start to resent requests because you yourself add on all these things they didn't care about. If you're asked to do a presentation, that doesn't mean you have to have slides. <laughs> 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 and it's so, so obvious, but like sometimes people are like, oh, I've been asked to do a presentation. I've got to have slides. i got to have printouts. i got to, my slides have to have tons of stuff on them. we got to have You know, we're going to add some bells and whistles to it. Uh, We're going to to have video footage. We're going to... That's not what people asked for. So don't don't add on things that aren't actually being asked for. Do the first... It's better to do the first mile than to try and do the second mile. And then you either get exhausted in the process or you don't even get it done.
0: I had a client years ago who had a a manager that we had done a bunch of work with. And I, I always considered him to be such a wise person. And I remember him telling me one day, he oversaw a team of engineers, and he said, you know, the biggest problem I have is not people not doing great work. He said, the biggest problem I have is that I can't get people to recognize when they need to be doing A-plus work and when B-plus work or B-minus work is perfectly okay. And he said, absolutely, times we need to do A-plus work on certain things, but a lot of times... Not only would it be better if we did B-work, but it's essential because we can't do everything that's 100%. And he said, I have such a hard time helping people really recognize that distinction. And that really like ties back to what you just said of thinking. We do tend to almost automatically want to make things harder and make them 100% and go the extra mile and all the motivational phrases we've all heard right? without stopping to really think. Is that going to really be necessary in this situation?
1: That's exactly right. And it's, this is a message perhaps not for everyone. It, it's a message for high performers who are on the edge of exhaustion or past it, for people who are already all in. You know, we, we've uh, at least 10 years that engagement was a, a, a key word in management. We've got to engage people. We want them to be fully engaged. And and of course, that's true. If you've got employers and we all have people in organizations that aren't really engaged, they're just going through the motions or something, you want them to be engaged. But that misses the point for a certain percentage of the population who are already highly engaged. They're already all in. They've already given so much. They're already ready to pivot. I mean, this is the population. For that population, you don't want them to Everything needs to be at A. Everything has to be all in do you, as, as, your, as your friend said, you can't do that, but but even if they can, it's not ideal. it's not optimal. You're not actually optimizing value. They're going to reach diminishing returns and even negative returns if they try to do that. And so for this particular population, and the people listening to this will know whether they're that kind of person or whether their their teams are those kinds of people, but if they are. For, for that group, you—I mean, there's even a phrase, and I'm hesitant to say it because I know it can be misunderstood. But, but this idea—I will share it anyway. That if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. Huh. Now, I don't want to overstate it. Of course, I believe in doing things well. I believe in in taking pride in the work that you do, and I, I personally do. But it's a good principle. If you tend to be a perfectionist. If you tend to want to do everything, you know, right, it's very helpful to sometimes add in the, you know, let's call it the salt of if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. Now, you can't overdo this. You know, if you add too much salt to a meal, it's going to ruin the whole thing. So you have to be careful in how you apply that principle. But just, I mean, I'll just give you a personal example recently of this. You know, if if we as a family are going on holiday, we have a whole series of things that we do, and we have things that, that you know we want to be responsible in a variety of ways, and that it, you know it's quite a quite an undertaking. And then we thought, well, actually, we're going to do this thing spontaneously, and we kept we kept using pointing that well, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly, and suddenly we could see well, there's tons of stuff we normally do we don't need to do at least this time. This time, we just want to do it spontaneously, and, and, and for this experience, we can, and we just, okay, we're just going to, all we're doing, people are just going to pack, um, and we're going to make one phone call for someone who's going to watch the house, and we're going to go. And we left the next day, and we did it. And I'm just saying that it's helpful to have in your toolkit that principle when we're overcomplicating, when we're overthinking, when we're going too far on stuff that doesn't really matter that there is a time to pull out that principle, add that salt to be able to actually get optimal results.
0: Greg, this is uh, so helpful. Tons of principles and stories and examples. The book, again, is called Effortless. Make it easier to do what matters most. You can grab it now. Greg McEwen, thank you so much for your work. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. If this conversation with Greg was useful to you, several related episodes I'd also recommend. One of them is episode 319, The Way to Stop Spinning Your Wheels on Planning. I'm often asked how I keep all the balls in the air and manage all kinds of different projects and move forward and also to say no to the things that are important to say no to. Almost all the answers to that question on how I process it are in episode 319, in that episode I walk through how I approach my own planning process, how I think about things in 90-day increments, and how I utilize that in order to plan out my weeks well, but also to make decisions on what to say no to. If you're looking for a framework that would be helpful to you, episode 319 may be a good starting point for you. I'd also recommend episode 469. That's the last time Greg was on the show, and he told us about how to see what really matters. We talked about some of the key lessons from his book Essentialism. It was such a useful book to me at the time it came out and continues to inform a lot of my thinking about how I think about my professional time and resources and informs a lot of my planning, as I mentioned from episode 319. That one's episode 469. See what really matters. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 507, How to Change Your Behavior, with my guest BJ Fogg. BJ, of course, the founder of the Tiny Habits Method, his conversation that we aired earlier this year has been so helpful to so many of you of thinking about where to start on behavior change. And if you, like me, coming out of this conversation, are thinking about some things that you may want to change your behavior, episode 507 is such a wonderful and useful framework. Uh, BJ's work is just fabulous, uh, well researched, and also so practical for us to get moving on changing our behavior, not just acquiring knowledge, as you hear me talk about on the show a lot, but then doing something with it practically so it's useful to you, your organization, and the people you influence. That's episode 507. All of those episodes are on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you haven't already, take a moment to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. When you do that, it's going to allow you to search the entire library by topic, and one of the topic areas that we have is productivity. This episode is going to be listed under there, as well as personal leadership. But so many other conversations we've had over the last decade on both of those topics, both of those folders are full of all kinds of resources for you, plus all of the other resources available to you in free membership, including the Membercasts the free audio courses, my weekly leadership guide that comes out every Wednesday with all the relevant links from every episode, and of course, access to my own personal library as well. All of that you can find at coachingforleaders.com. Just set up your free membership and you'll be off and running with all the benefits in just a few moments. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Bonnie back to the show. We are responding to your questions if you've got one for us to consider, go over to coachingforleaders.com feedback. That's the very best way to get it to us to be considered for this question and answer episode upcoming or a future one. Have a wonderful week and I'll see you back with Bonnie next Monday. Take care, everybody.